Greetings, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast dedicated to dissecting all of your favorite franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. This week, we start rounding home and wrapping up another franchise with the fourth installment of the Phantasm series. We're talking about Oblivion, released in 1998, written and directed once again by Don Coscarelli, and starring Michael Baldwin, Reggie Bannister, Bill Thornberry, and of course, once again, Angus Scrim returning as the tall man. As always, I am not alone, riding shotgun in the Hemi Cuda. She's been on with us for every episode of our Phantasm journey here. You've heard her here on the Losers Club. I'm sorry, you've heard her on the Losers Club. Uh, You've read her work on Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, and many more. Once again, it's Rachel Reeves. Rachel, how are we? Hey, I am here. Excited to continue this phantasm journey. (laughs) Any regrets yet? Any like, oh, I've made a mistake. Okay, regret's a strong word, but we're going to get into it. But yeah, this was the first time I was like, okay. All right, we're we're getting into it now. <laughs> like we're really yes, okay. putting the putting the fan to the test. Okay. <laughs> Got it. And we also have another special guest tonight. He's back for his second go round in this series after joining us for Phantasm Two, Don't Stop Fantasing from the Dead Letter Movie Podcast. Welcome back, Andrew Fabry to the show. Andrew, how are we? Hi, I'm doing great. Yeah. It was nice to revisit this. I hadn't seen this since uh, probably twenty years, and it was it was what I remember it being, <laughs> but um, but but with more, but uh, but I have you know I have twenty more years of 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 growth and maturity mm-hmm. on of it context that, that, of context and yeah. Well, that's what I want to um, ask you about because when we were putting this franchise together and we were doing guests, like you had reached out and said, "Hey, when you get to Oblivion, could I guest on that?" Um, because I probably like have more to say about that than some of the others, which was interesting because most people are usually when we do these series, like they're more front loaded, like a lot of people like, oh, give me the original movie. And it's by the time we get to like, I don't know, Freddy's dead. It can be like, all right, we're having some trouble pulling some people in (laughs) for this one now, you know, by the time we get to like Jason X, it's kind of like, all right, crickets are out there. Um, but you were on board from the start for Oblivion. So could you maybe tell me a little bit about like your first impressions about this movie and like why something about it like stuck with you for 20 years? Well, I think the thing I really liked about it was its use of unused footage from the first one. And at the time, so I, I saw these pretty close together in succession. I maybe probably less than a month. Um, I was working at a video store at the time and we had all of them. And so when, and I, and I enjoyed two, I mean, well, you heard me talk about two, but, and I also would like the third one. And, but when we got to the fourth one, it felt like a, like it felt kind of back to basics in an odd way. And I like really enjoyed that. And I found the, I found using that old footage that wasn't in the first movie to be like a really inventive way to make the best out of a bad situation. And that is the thing that kind of stuck with me the most about it is that, well, maybe we can't make the thing we want to make right now, but we have all this other stuff that we could potentially use. And so 
I don't know, I don't really know if it really makes sense the whole time to use that stuff, but I don't think this was really a series that prides itself on making sense. So, I, I don't know. And I think when, when you watch, because when you have, like, two action movies, and then this sort of Monty Hellman road movie of a phantasm film, it, like, it stuck with me in, like, a very unusual way that when... When people would ask me, like, well, which, how would you rank the Phantasm series? This was always the second one for me, hmm. because I just liked how, how like the first one, and how of its own self it is at the same time. So I think that's why I kind of dig this one so much. Yeah, I like how you're using some counseling language in there. The school oh, totally, counselor yeah. in you. It's like, <laughs> yeah. we're going to make the best of a bad situation. It's like, yes, that <laughs> yes. is something I would definitely... <laughs> say to kids um <laughs> so i like that yeah so how was it revisiting it like what's your what was your without going too deep because we're going to talk about it when we talk about the movie but how was it like revisiting it 20 years later so revisiting it 20 years later i i actually think i connect more with that like i i am not the right age to say this specifically but that midlife crisis aspect mm -hmm. to this i feel like there is this I'm not the person I used to be kind of thing. And like Mike is literally doing that because he's got like an orb in his head. But I think there's also a like masculine thing to that as well, or maybe not masculine per se, but I mean like there is a getting older kind of aspect to that. Mm -hmm. And I also, I've like, I found myself catching like more of an, like a surprising Roger Avery influence than I expected and, and that's only because I became more aware of, like, how Roger Avery did things in 2002 mm -hmm. or when I saw this. I didn't really know anything about, other than Pulp Fiction existing, I didn't really know much else about him. And so, like, yeah, it's, it, I, it, I still would probably rank it as my number two of the five. But, yeah, it wasn't, it maybe didn't hit me as hard then, but I do think I noticed more stuff this time. Yeah. And Rachel, you were the one that brought this series to us. And I remember, I think you had done it based on maybe just the first two movies. Yes, correct. So you and I were both like, both of us had only seen the first two Phantasms. So we're like, let's give this series a go, which could be interesting because like we don't know what we're in for. You know, there are some things like if we ever said, let's do Hellraiser, I think we know without having seen mm -hmm. all of them, like, it would be a very bumpy ride. Um, so, which is why we probably will never do the Hellraiser <laughs> series. Um, is it bumpier than Chainsaw, though? That's... Every, yes. I will defend all of the Chainsaw. Okay. Because I think all of the Chainsaw movies have something, at the very least, interesting to talk about. Like, the most basic one is the third one. And even that one is still a lot of fun as a slasher. Um, so, yeah, I... Good sir, if you need if, go back through the archives and <laughs> you find anyone that brings more to the table when it comes to uh, the next generation than us, and I will buy you a Coke. Okay? Um, no, I, I don't think that's gonna happen. But I, I was just checking. So, I was just checking. Um, yeah. So please, um, what were your initial thoughts on Oblivion? Like, were there any like, oh man, I've made a terrible mistake here, or? You know, what were your original uh, initial My initial thoughts. thoughts. So watching that opening, I was like, oh boy. Okay. It's all right. You can do this. Rachel, you got this. Not a big deal. You know, I'm sitting there for, I don't know, what feels like half an hour. And then the title card shows up. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. 
Um, but that's, you know, I appreciate that because it let me prepare. You know, it wasn't like this really dramatic cold open that gave me like false expectations. So I felt like I was mentally prepared. Um, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, we can get into it. I, I feel like, you know, when you're writing a high off of you know, Phantasm 1, 2, and 3, you know, eventually you're going to have to come down. And I feel like that's what this is. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I did not like it. It's not like I hated it. But it was like a little bit of like, okay, we're going to breathe for a sec now. <laughs> and it's yeah. interesting that you said, Andrew, that, you know, Phantasm, you know, kind of prides itself on not making sense. And I think my we can talk about it more, but my biggest gripe with this one is like, it feels like for the first time they're trying to make it make sense. And I think that's uh, yes, where my yes. issue with it lies. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, the, the, the scenes that were included, I did not know all those outtakes and things were in there. So it did have some really great moments for me that I'm also excited to talk about the, the highs mm-hmm. that it did have. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say for me, like this all, like I said, it was also a first time watch. And I started watching it immediately after we recorded part three. I just wanted to jump right in. And I think about 27 or 28 minutes and I like paused it and I'm like, I'm going to start this over again tomorrow because I was pretty tired. It is only half paying attention Mm -hmm. to it. But I kind of had that like a little bit of a pit in my stomach, like, oh, this one might be a tough <laughs> one to get through. Um, because it definitely has, like, a direct-to-video feel. Oh, yeah. Um, it came out in 98 when horror was pretty hot again, and we're going to talk about that later on. But if you had told me this actually came out in 94, back when there was a lot more direct-to-video movies that are just being dumped into the market, and horror was being kind of usurped by like psychological thrillers and like, you know, slashers have taken a backseat and there's like no practical effects jumps anymore. I would have believed you. Like it's really bizarre to me that this comes out two years post scream when horror is big again. And this couldn't be anything further from it. Like it captures none of that zeitgeist whatsoever. But part of me kind of has a lot of respect for the fact that, you know, Don Coscarelli is less interested in just like, hey, I'm going to make like the tall man a slasher villain now. And he probably could have done that and maybe have gotten a couple more million to make the movie. But this is like really a very niche movie that you could not jump into this without having seen the other ones and have had any idea of what's going on. So Coscarelli's making these like very introspective movies for a very small audience, and he's totally happy with it. The behind the scenes with this movie, like how this movie came to be, is really fascinating, like maybe even more so than the movie itself. So before we kind of talk about the movie proper let's kind of do a little history lesson here um so i do want to give a shout out again to author and film historian dustin mcneil he has two books on the phantasm series uh phantasm exhumed and further exhumed which uh they've been essential companions as we dove into this series 
He's also co-authored the books Taking Shape, Taking Shape 2 on the Halloween series. He penned like the essential behind the scenes history of Freddy versus Jason with Slash of the Titans. And the one I wish I knew about at the time, he's done all the child's play movies uh, in depth with his book Reign of mm. Chucky. So, you know, he is doing with franchises in book form what we often try to do in podcast form. And I really wish he had a book on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, before we did that series. There are some very good companion books that we picked up researching that series, but I know his would have gone like a couple steps further. Um so a lot of the behind the items that we're going to talk about here, and especially next episode, Ravager, where that actually might be the beef of the episode, will be like how that movie got made. A lot of like what we're going to talk about right now, it's a direct result of his research. So like hats off to Dustin McNeil, who I cannot find a way to contact because I would love to have him on the show to talk about one of these movies. Um, so if you're out there, Dustin, and you're a listener, you know, reach out, <laughs> call me, pick up. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I had this note, like strange origins, like basically after winning the 1994 best screenplay Oscar for uh, co-writing Pulp Fiction, Roger Avery pitches his follow-up project. Phantasm 1999 as one. I, I, that's shocking. You got to shoot your shot, it's right? Shocking, but I yeah. love it. Right? Not Phantasm 2000, though, but Phantasm <laughs> no. 1999. Phantasm, yeah. got to be very clear on that. Phantasm mm-hmm. 2K, uh, or not Y2, P2K, <laughs> Phantasm <laughs> 1999. Yeah. And the title, as it took longer and longer to make, it would evolve to Phantasm 2013, and finally Phantasm's End. So, Avery is like a longtime fan of the original and he writes this big budget epic that would show like the tall man basically clearing a path of destruction all throughout the United States. Like what we learn in part two where he's going from town to town and like basically sucking all the light from them. He's done this throughout the whole country and he's done it with this thing called a bag plague which would cause its victims' heads to explode, like swell, burst, and explode, and then new victims would be infected by the contaminated blood and bone from those. So Reggie is in it. He sets out to rescue Mike, who's trapped in the quarantine zone, which is the tall man's home base. And it goes so far, like, not only is there a script, but, like, there are story details and concept art posted online. Like at the Phantasm uh, fan site mm. that Coscarelli was running. And allegedly, there's a role for Bruce Campbell written in it uh, as one of the commandos. So basically, you're going to have this like army commandos trying to take down the tall man. And for what it's worth, like Campbell denies any involvement in the movie, but it maybe was just like written with him in mind and never got any further than that. Um, And as these reveals are coming out and we'll link like there's, I believe it's on bloody disgusting. Um, They actually have like a what if article and it has some of the concept art that was posted and it shows like Reggie wearing what looks like almost like a monk or a Jedi robe (laughs) in it. Um, There is some like pretty cool concept art that is posted and they talk to some of the behind the scenes player about like, wouldn't this have been a cool design? So, 
the fans seem pretty enthusiastic about the reveals as they're coming out. Like, whoa, this sounds kind of awesome. The folks that read the script kind of balked at it for a few reasons. Number one, it had a price tag of at least $8 million. Mm. And you know if they're saying $8 million, it's probably like 10 or 11 or yeah. $12 million, uh, which isn't a lot of money, but it is three times the budget of the third movie and more than twice the budget of the second movie, neither of which were financial successes. Like they weren't, you know, if you're doing a, a $8 million movie, but making $40 million, that's understandable. If you're doing a $3 million movie and making $2 million, it's like, mm, not so good. Does it make sense? Um, other issues, as people dug into the script, were... The appearances of things like screaming monkeys no. named Kiki that would save Reggie by clawing out the tall man's eyes. And Rachel, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the second movie that there would be like a monkey companion yes. for Fantastic? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Why? Why are people obsessed with putting monkeys in movies? <laughs> well, okay, monkeys wait. are awesome. Did this was the '90s, right? Did Ross have the monkey? On friends yes. at that time? Oh, well, I don't. I assume so. That, that, there you go. I don't know what year, yeah. but monkeys were just hot in pop oh, culture gosh. at that point. Yeah, it had to be before that because the monkey was because Courtney Cox <laughs> was doing Friends when she did Scream, right? Right. So that's ninety six, okay. and the monkey I think was only in season one of uh... Friends, and then it demanded too high a salary, so they wrote him off. Right. So, yeah, the monkeys would have been pretty big. And what year was Dunstan checks? Oh, also, <laughs> also mid 90s, but I don't know for okay. sure. So, monkeys I don't know, early mid 90s or mid mid 90s. I'm unsure. Okay. Like, so it was a high point in Congo? monkey culture. Uh, yes. Donkey Congo, Congo outbreak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same monkey. Yeah. Um, um, Donkey Kong Country was like pretty big on the N64. If I remember correctly, as well, so yes. we know, were going you... ape shit as a <laughs> as a country. Yeah, yeah. so ah. <laughs> I liked that. It's a good dad joke. So basically, yeah, if you could find a way to incorporate monkeys into your script, maybe you get that eight million. But sadly for TT, it wasn't to be. Um, but other things like it didn't necessarily feel like a phantasm movie. Like uh, the tall man's introduced on page five. But then he disappears for another 94 pages. Oh. Uh, Reggie and Mike, like their roles are condensed and they're kind of like shifted to the side. Mike in particular. Um, and instead, they're going to focus on a group of soldiers like sent into the quarantine zone. Like the note I have here is that Mike appears for the first time on page 84. So when you can figure like one minute of a movie time is one page of yeah. the script He's not appearing till probably Act Three. How long was this supposed to be? If this was supposed to be like, probably if that's probably two hours. Pro oh Lord, a two-hour Phantasm <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I like these movies, but you know that ninety minutes is a great place to. Oh keep yeah, things. It just it's perfect to keep it under yeah. ninety, and we're we're we'll stay friends. Um, there would have been like a lot of time travel and dimension hopping for Reggie in this movie. And I have a quote here from Kristen Deem, who, again, like she had started as like a huge fan of the first movie. 
for part two, she had come on board and had done some like unit production and some uh, hearse wrangling, but she basically served the same role that uh, the screenwriter of Curse of Michael Myers. Why am I forgetting his name now? Oh dear, that guy though, uh, that guy. Daniel Daniel Farlands. Um, he that right. he was like serving as like the continuity expert of the Halloween series uh-huh. at this time or like, years prior. Well, that's and a thankless job. Kristen. Yeah. Well, he got the job by presenting like a Bible to Miramax and saying here are dimension. And like, here is everything you need to know about this series. Here's how everything. And they're like, okay, this is crazy. You're hired. <laughs> right. Be another movie. Um, Kristen Deem is not quite that, but she definitely, is keeping track of all the continuity and she's in Coscarelli's ear uh, and actually will shape a lot of oblivion as well as Coscarelli is writing it. But Rachel, would you mind reading this quote from her about why Avery script like maybe wasn't? Yeah, going I'd to love work? to. It says phantasm 1999 was a well-written apocalyptic Mad Max affair, a search and destroy story mixed liberally with comedy Yet I couldn't help thinking how this was not a phantasm movie. It had little of the foreboding aura, virtually none of the brooding nightmarish moments that caused the first movie to get under my skin. The tall man and Mike Pearson were hardly in it. It isn't a phantasm movie if the story doesn't revolve around those two characters. P-1999 could have stood on its own, something entirely apart from Phantasm. With a different title, it might have been extremely successful. My apologies, uh, my apologies to Kristen for making her sound like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, she has a uh, Spanish accent. Can we do it? I don't, no. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if she does. Um, yeah, when I think Phantasm movies, I think like... Uh, search and destroy and comedy are the two, you know, tones that kind of come to mind when I think of Phantasm. I mean, that would be like doing a Halloween movie and making like a whiny teenage boy uh, your protagonist for the last movie in the series. Like it would be that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, comic misfire or, you know, like sending f- Jason into space, you know, you know, kind of like. That kind yeah, of thing. Leprechaun going yes. back to the hood. Yes. Yeah, there's yes. a fine line because yes. it can't work. Like, obviously, we've seen it even recently, you know, with Scream. Like, there is something of value, I think, to kind of, you know, recontextualizing and reimagining what a franchise mm-hmm. can be. And I don't know if somebody is really passionate, like, you know, this original script was. It seems like it was coming from a place of love. Maybe it could yeah. have actually worked in a really interesting way because phantasm does have the Mm -hmm. room to get kind of wild you know more than i would say Mm -hmm. like a scream does so that's true yeah that's true when you have that like dream fantasy stuff going on you 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 can do so much but at this Mm -hmm. time I, i get the reservations for sure what do you think a bruce campbell probably firmly in ash like not playing Ash, wink, wink, but maybe his name is, I don't know, Cash. <laughs> what do you think a Bruce Campbell, like Reggie Bannister face off would be like in 
a uh, Phantasm 99. How would that have looked? Oh, that would have been really funny, actually, because, you know, they both have their own certain kind of, like, swagger and charm, but they're very, you know, very different. (laughs) Yeah. I I think we get a version of that in Bubba Hotep, don't we? Don't they have a couple of scenes together? It's been so long since I've watched Bubba Hotep, and the only thing I remember from that movie is like Aussie yelling, like they replaced my brain with sand, you know, just yeah, yeah. The, literally the only thing I can remember now about that movie. And I need to mm-hmm. rewatch it. Is that your cat who's just at the vet? Yes. Yes, she is. She is fi- clearly fine. She um, is very yes. clearly fine. Yes. Tarantula. She's, she's, she's doing great. Yep. That's a good girl right there. Yep. All right. Um, so by 1997, any momentum on this project is basically gone. And seems like Coscarelli knew as early as like January 1995 that Avery's take is just not going to happen. So even as work is being done to move that forward, Coscarelli is writing a new script. And again, heavy collaboration with Kristen Dean. And the original title is Phantasm Forever. Um, And it's pretty much the movie we get. Like when you read the um, background of that script, it's retitled Oblivion, but pretty much it follows all of the same beats. And I have a quote here from Angus Scrimm in his own personal journals. Uh, So this is dated uh, September 25th, 1997. And Andrew, would you mind doing your best Angus Scrimm in reading that here? Uh, Okay. Yeah. All right, because he was kind of like a he was kind of like a nice guy, right? He's not. I don't want to do the boy <laughs> stuff. Um, no, uh, I think there was, okay. he was much more Jebediah Morningside mm-hmm. than yes. Man. This is the best Coscarelli script I've read. It's it's yeah, <laughs> that, that's what you're getting. Okay, that's excellent. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It gets back to eerie qualities of the first film in scene after haunting scene. Plus, there's a deepening and enrichment of the four main characters that will be fascinating to play. Something Excellent. along those lines, yeah. Very good. I would have loved if there's like, and here was his initial thoughts in the script. It's shite, but I've got bills to pay. That would be mm-hmm. amazing. I love that. I, I love just thinking script. about him like writing in a journal. Like I'm so like, mm-hmm. oh, he like, totally would too. Knowing that this exists like made me so happy because I was like, oh my god, he's so mm-hmm. cute. I could just like imagine him like sitting at a table drinking some tea and like writing in his journal. Mm-hmm. Like that's adorable. And he's a writer by trade. Like yeah, by yeah. trade, he's writing like the liner notes for classical albums and jazz albums. I love that. So adorable. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Deem is a huge influence on the script. Um, her contributions to it include like the Civil War flashback, the return of the fortune teller from the first movie, yeah. uh, and the introduction of Jebediah Morningside. An idea that she pitched but wasn't used was like Mike Pearson actually Mm. being an alien. And it is like his yellow blood that infects Jebediah that transforms him Mm -hmm. to the tall man. So that would have been like the twist. So maybe that one is better left (laughs) on the cutting room floor. I I have a note here. I'm sorry. I feel Kristen, I really like have nothing against you. But this to me, like these ideas here feel like that like classic kind of toxic fandom (laughs) thing Mm -hmm. and just like how you can love a property so much and be so invested in it that sometimes your ideas aren't necessarily healthy for the story because 
Yeah, a Civil mm-hmm. War flashback of like a field medic, like tall man. Like what? I'm sorry, what? And then like bringing the elements of like the fortune teller, and then like oh, Morningside, you know, because of the like the funeral home, and like making a backstory for that. Like that's all the kind of stuff that we see people. I mean, people, we talk about that all the time, right? Like, why does everything need, why does every villain need an origin story? Like, sometimes mm-hmm. things are just better left mysterious. Yeah. And so, right. yeah, sorry, sorry, Kristen. I feel like some of these ideas may be, like, I get it. You love something so much, but at the same time, like, eh, I don't know if you really want to go there. <laughs> yeah. It does always feel like by part four, that is where, okay, we have to come up with, like, some reasons why this character keeps coming back like the elm street series we start to see that um where you're getting by parts three and four it deals a lot more with like freddy's origins even like by the in the child's play series by the time you get to bride of chucky like they're like all right we got to talk a lot more about charles's mm-hmm. backstory so we're going to inter- we're going to introduce these new characters into it it's kind of like all right you know there's only so much meat on this bone we kind of have to prep it up a little bit um so coscarelli comes up with the idea like when he's doing the script he decides like we have all of these outtakes from phantasm because the original cut of that movie was somewhere close to three hours. Um, And I think they had actually screened it with that three-hour cut Mm -hmm. once or twice before kind of like really chopping away at it to get it, you know, under the 90 minutes. So they have all of these outtakes. And from my understanding, like Coscarelli kind of writes the new material around that outtake material in terms of Mm -hmm. like we can weave this pretty seamlessly into one story and i think (laughs) i think it works and we'll talk more about that i think it they it more hits and misses and i think there was like originally nine outtake scenes they were going to use in this and they cut it down to five yeah i think we have deleted scenes on the blu-rays and such because they decided not to use them sure (laughs) um on the uh, on the original phantasm yeah um, now he needs to sell this movie and they, oh, they're also like, they're going to strip away, uh, Fred Myro's score of the original phantasm yeah. and retrofit like Christopher Stone's a new score, which yeah. and Rachel, you're our music guru yeah. and I can see your face right now. Not loving that. Decision. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, it's fine. Like it's fine to bring in other composers. I just wasn't necessarily very impressed with the score. It was, it was yeah. fine. It was fine. Yeah, yeah. I forget yeah. there's music. Yeah, I mean, I don't, th- I don't think the it, there's nothing about the score that is memorable. Oh, there know, is like some moments where there's um, like a western kind of twangy like guitar and stuff that's memorable, mm-hmm. but not necessarily mm-hmm. for the right reason. <laughs> not in a good way. Yeah, yeah, not in a way you want to remember. And I understand why he made that choice, but no, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What would be, there must be, like, rights issues around, like, repurposing or reusing Myro's score in the movie. Um, I don't know. Especially for, like, the the older yeah. material. Um, so it's assumed by the public that this is going to be it. Uh, there's actually a cover story by Fangoria uh, that's titled, like, The Tall Man's Final Ball. And I tried to find that article. Like, I was going through the 
Fango archives online as a subscriber. But unfortunately, like that one has not been oh. uploaded yet to the net. And I wasn't going to pay like 30 bucks to jump on eBay and grab an old issue of Fango that would not have arrived in time for it one. It might be but... on archive. It it wasn't. I, I, I... Oh, it wasn't even on oh. .org or anything? Archive.org? No. No, because this would have been just when Fantas- Fangoria was print. Um, yeah, so yeah. They'll, they'll, you can find that. So some people will scan it and put it on archive.org sometimes. All right. Let's I, have, pa- I have done that more than once. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pause this episode. <laughs> uh, sorry, give me sorry. a day. Um, so, but even Fangoria is saying, like, this is going to be it. Meanwhile, Coscarelli has, like, ideas in place for more sequels. And he tries to make it so, like, just in case avery's script ever finds its sea legs again oblivion can fit into that he doesn't do anything where you know technically phantasm 1999 wouldn't work um so going into the casting all four core members they agree to return scrim actually turns down a role in the upcoming x-files movie to return as a tall man um Michael Baldwin like actually wasn't that interested in coming back originally. You know, he was saying it's long hours. It's not a lot of money. Um, I've kind of done this character a couple of times already. I kind of want to move on. So he's able to secure a production credit in order to come back. And they do talk about him being like very active on the set, doing things more like a line producer Hmm. will do, but like really, you know, being able to get that producer's credit, which will help him in the long term as he, kind of moves forward with his career. Uh, Heidi Marhout is signed on to play the role of Jennifer, like a very much smaller of a role than Rocky in part three. Um, She had just appeared in a movie called Vice Girls, which had been written, produced and starred Michael Baldwin and Kelly, Kerry Pryor, uh, who would do the sphere effects on parts two, three and four was handling the FX on vice on vice girls. Bob Ivey, who plays the demon trooper. He's doing double duty as the stunt coordinator. Looking forward to talking about the demon trooper. Just like with the Phantasm movies, it does kind of seem like more of a family affair than others. Like, obviously, Coscarelli has written and directed all of these so far, but he keeps getting folks to come back. Like, they're really enjoying the experience, not just in front of the camera, but behind it. So... Close to a dozen people return. Like we've mentioned, Kristen Deem. Um, Chris Choyam returns as the director of photography. Jeff Schiffman is an assistant director. Scott Gill is editor. Um, Kelly Pryor comes back for the third time to handle the sphere effects. Uh, Guy Thorpe returns as the uh, hearse wrangler, uh, which I think is his official title. Um, Not returning was special effects guru Mark Schostrom. He had just committed to doing the effects on the X-Files movie as well as Men in Black. Nice. So kind of a good yeah. choice there for Mr. Showstrom. That was, that was um, a good decision. Who I don't. Am I wrong? Like, do we not talk about him enough when we talk about the effects gurus from the 80s? Because he had worked on, I want to say, Elm Street 2. He had done the effects on Evil Dead 2 for sure. He's done effects on Phantasm 2 and 3. Then he goes and works on, you know, the X-Files movie and then Men in Black, like a pretty groundbreaking film in terms of its X-Facts. So, but I don't hear Shulkstrom in the same 
breath that I hear, like a Savini, a Baker, a Botin, KB. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like there's some heavy hitters or the people who are like heads of, you know, these houses. But then obviously there's a bunch mm-hmm. of extremely talented people under them that don't don't always mm-hmm. get the credit necessarily they no. deserve. No. Yep. Well, in the case of Phantasm Four. Um, Showstrom's former interns that would go on to form their own effects company, K&B, you may have <laughs> heard of them, uh, Kurtzman, Nekatero, and Howard Berger, they actually, as a favor to Coscarelli, like, say, we'll handle the effects in this movie and we'll give you, like, a really, really good deal on it. Because there's no money for this movie. Like, now, all these people are on board with doing it. But he has to sell the movie at this point. So Coscarelli assembles a trailer. It has like footage of the first three movies, screens it at the 1997 American film market. It's just like a little convention or a forum to potentially sell projects to investors. And these people think they're watching like a new cut, like or a new footage, not this recycled yeah. material. Uh, and he sets the teaser to Myro score. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. Best, it's the better one. Right? He has around, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, but he's not using Christopher Stone's, you know, weak score, you know, and he's going for the big boy. Um, he also hires like a model wearing a bikini that is composed of like the protruding spheres to usher in <laughs> potential investors at like a little meet and greet, which is. Oh, Do you the think late this 90s, is something he'd you know? been thinking about for a while? Yeah, because then we see it in this movie too. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 I guess who originally was supposed to play that role too was Michael Baldwin's <laughs> wife or then wife. And Baldwin was kind of like, I really don't, because she was the nurse in Phantasm 2 okay. or 3 when um, it goes kind of yeah. zombie. So she plays the nurse that is like at the desk that like nods to Reggie and Reggie kind of like I fucks her basically for lack of a better term because <laughs> oh, that's Reggie. Yes. Um, and I think Baldwin, so she was going to return in that role. And I think Baldwin was like, I really don't want my wife to have these like fears for boobs. Like just he, the image of her, like those things coming out of her, like just going to ruin me. I don't want that for her. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think you know. I mean, when you're thinking about mer- like when you think about merchandising, they made Nightmare on Elm Street like bed sheets. Yep. Right. So mm-hmm. I kind of think like a sphere bikini. It's not. It's not. Halloween it is just around the corner. You know, it would make a great mm-hmm. costume. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's beach season. Beach season. Yeah. You know. It's a sphere girl summer. <laughs> Let's get that going. <laughs> I, I feel like he had to have thought of that before, like probably even at the first movie. And then was like, someone probably told him no. And like, no, Don, we're not. No, we're not doing that. And and with that thing with Mike, it sounds like it may have been Mike yeah. at one point. But yeah. <laughs> I love that idea of just like you're going to maybe write like a six figure check and you're greeted at the door by like a lovely woman wearing like the tall man's fierce 
on the front like, of you. Hey, like, that's boy. Just... <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, you know. No, no razors out. I, I'm guessing, but uh, spikes, spikes. Would you know exactly they were sure. spheres then? Like if they were just, I think you would have to have the spheres out. Have them on your arms or something. No, I think you would. Yeah, I think you would have to yeah. have them out. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like a silver bikini, mm. and that's boring. That's we've been there and mm-hmm. done that. You know, we there's gotta... a sexy version of every Halloween costume, and yet we don't have sexy phantasm, which would obviously okay. Be we got to make this happen. Uh, I want to okay, see Jessica. If you're listening, you do the <laughs> most amazing cosplays, like um, sexy we, tall. Man. Well, the tall man sexy and tall man. a sphere. Like we got, you know, there's. Mm. The, there's a lot of yeah, there's a, a lot of untapped be, potential yeah. in this franchise that we really need to get into. What would a what would a sexy Reggie Bannister costume look like? I guess just Reggie a Bannister. Ponytail, some flannel. Yeah, Reggie Bannister. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has to be the ice cream outfit. Oh, I think. Yeah, ice cream. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah. See, there's so much here. All right. <laughs> We've gone yeah. off the rails. Yeah, sorry. You've gone off. The I, rails. I will say one thing. I knew one thing that made me realize I was more adult this time watching watching the movie was when he gets in the ice cream uniform. I'm just like, man, he's gonna get so dirty being out in the oh, desert. Oh, and I thought about that too. I was like, yeah, right. He's been hauling that around. His house blew up. Like, why is he still carrying around? And it's so white. Yeah, he's been keeping it clean. So this white. Whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did not think that at all. So that's an excellent, <laughs> excellent observation. Um, all right. So eventually the bikini <laughs> works and uh, he, Coscarelli is able to secure funding, um, but it is severely limited compared to the previous two movies. Uh, it's a quarter of part three's budget at about 650,000 bucks. So I think adjusted for inflation, it was less than uh, he would have gotten for the first movie, which is about okay. 300000 20 years I, ago. I was wondering yeah. how it compared with the first yeah, movie. Because it, is... this, it, it feels cheaper, Yep, but things are also cheaper to do slightly or yeah. slightly but yeah sometimes yeah so in the case of this like they're saving at every turn like they have a warehouse in northridge california that stores a lot of the props from previous movies so like okay we can reuse a lot of these props but they also it's about the size of a garage they use it to build a couple of the smaller indoor sets um they use it for like the hotel room and jebediah's lab um they build partial sets of like Bolton, which is the re- beginning of the movie, which is the uh, part end of part three, and also the mausoleum. When you watch this, like the reason why most of the film takes place outdoors is because it was just mm-hmm. cheap to do. So, mm-hmm. Coscarelli's. Well, hmm? well uh, the thing I was also wondering if reusing the old footage was also a way to save money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's like, and like, it sounded like he came up with like, well, I'll just use this stuff. Like, and like without thinking, that would have been my first thought if mm-hmm. I was trying to save money. I was like, I yeah. have all this stuff from the first movie. Like, that'll yeah. save me at least. He's like, like yeah. what if I just re-show all of Phantasm with a different title card and <laughs> midway through the movie, we have a demon cop. And we just call it Phantasm <laughs> Four. Yeah, so well, it did kind of work for Silent Night, Deadly Night too. I kind mean, of, it did. It did. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I've never seen that movie because I've seen the first one, and by all accounts, I don't need to see it yeah, because I've seen the first movie. Garbage Day or scene, and I've seen it. That's it. 
Um, that might be a franchise we dive into for Absolutely. the holidays this year because I think that could be a lot. Right. Of, once and you I get think Monty past, Hellman did one, yeah, yeah, that could be a lot of fun. So they're looking for locations. They look at like Lone Pine, Death Valley, and like the Sand Dunes and Baker. So Lone Pine had been doing like housing film crews since the twenties. They've like. Uh, done films like Gunga Din, High Sierra, and The Three Godfathers. Post Oblivion, uh, Man of Steel shoots partially mm-hmm. there. In uh, uh, Post Oblivion, we have Man of Steel and Django Unchained. Early filming, super miserable. Harsh conditions, difficult to get trucks in and out, um, poor roads, subpar combinations. They're like four hours from LA, so if they forget something, they pretty much lose a whole day to shoot. And it's also super, super cold. And Andrew, I'm going to have you once again uh, play the oh. role of Mr. Angus Scrim. This is October 23rd, 1997. Okay. Warning comments on the call sheet. Be prepared for, cl- for climactic extremes. It'll be darn cold and darn hot. Don't play with the reptiles. I'm going up Saturday for Tallman's first day's shoot Sunday. Tonight, oh, late tonight... Uh, Kristen Deem phones from Lone Pine. Variously, a storyboard artist, script analysis, publicity slash casting assistant, and troubleshooter on previous Phantasms. Kristen is script supervisor on Phantasm 4. And overseeing wardrobe, she's seen no reptiles, but warns me to bring thermal underwear and and a heavy topcoat. The nights will freeze your eyebrows off. Lord help us. The tall man with no eyebrows? (laughs) Excellent. Very well done. If we ever do Avery's unused script on this show, if we ever just like host a reading of it, which I think we need to do, I think we have our tall man. I'll gladly, gladly. Excellent. All right. So I'll try not to do the hand. The uh, listeners can't see me doing the hand thing, but I'm totally doing this hand thing the whole time. You can do the hand. You're doing like a very, you're a very godfather, a very brand new. Um, In voice acting classes, they always are like, use use your whole body when you're when you're doing it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I think we need to yeah. do that. I think I think we need to bring this to the table. Sure. Uh, so, Oblivion is originally picked up by Orion. So it's the studio behind hits like Silence of the Lambs, The Terminator, Robert, RoboCop. Despite all of like these money making movies, like they're pretty much flat broke. So they're like, maybe we do a theatrical release. And then they realize it's Phantasm <laughs> 4 and say, nah, direct a video. And as this is going on, MGM buys up Orion. Uh, and MGM says, like, we are open to more sequels, depending on how Oblivion does video sales wise, which is like Dunkin Donuts saying we're open to opening more franchises, depending on how many people want to buy coffee. Like, of course, like. You know, if people want to, if they, this movie makes money, of course they will make more of them. Um, and in 1999, they release, MGM releases Phantasm to DVD for the first time, and they port over the bonus features from the 93 Laserdisc. I just found that kind of fascinating. We're now in the DVD yeah. era. Uh, I remember buying like the first generation Sony dvd player like right off the floor when i got my tax return that year and being a really early adopter um yep. i still have that dvd from 1999 really okay yeah yeah How it has the 
It's it looks. I mean, it actually looked better than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, MGM is actually pretty good about their um, what is it? Their transfers and stuff early mm-hmm. on. I mean, compared to now, they're not great, but at the time, they were pretty good. Sure. Um, and that one has this disco version of the theme that I don't think has been oh, ported over. I guess. What? So yeah, yeah. It's you can. Pr- it's probably on YouTube. It's probably super easy to find now. But yeah, that's on the ninety nine DVD. There's like this disco version of the phantasm theme and it and one time like when my wife and i were when we were dating she was just like she just played it randomly while we were driving somewhere so it's it's a banger i thought you were gonna say she played it just (laughs) i'd be like fan fucking tastic yeah disco music doesn't really uh do that for me (laughs) okay well the phantasm theme is a disco that's a good point that's a good point she's different uh, that's a different story that's different yeah yeah it made me realize that the Elm Street theme could also be discofied. Probably there's an Amityville well. horror mm-hmm. disco oh, yeah. theme, and yep. Friday the Thirteenth. Oh my god, I love it. Let's yep. Mm-hmm. I can't even think of like what the Amityville horror theme is, let alone like a disco version. You would know if it. you heard it. I bet. I, I bet you would hear it. You. and You'd be like, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. There, there is. Yeah. There's a theme. I need to. Well, I'm going to try to find this theme, and maybe that will be our outro yes, music for this episode, if I can do that this week. Um, so it has its world premiere August 6, 1998, 1998 at the Fantasia Film Fest. Uh, Coscarelli and Scrim are in attendance. They do a Q&A after. And the reviews are, like, meager but positive. Like, they're not effusive, but the folks that do review it, by and large, give it a pretty positive hmm. reviews. Um Ahead of its video release in October, MGM decides, like, let's send out thousands of promo screeners to video stores as giveaways and in-store contests. But that means, like, when you're giving out thousands of them and you have a really niche audience to begin with, a lot of the people that maybe would have bought or rented the movie, like, actually got it for free. Like, oh, fuck, awesome, free movie. It also means it's kind of pirated pretty heavily ahead of its release so i don't think sales were i don't have any numbers but i don't think they were like stellar sales you know the weird thing is now that you brought all that up mm-hmm. i now not my not the video store i worked at but when i would go to other video stores i do remember at least a handful of times where i would see phantasm one two and then four and no and, three and no three or in one case uh, that i remember one and then four and I bet that's why is because they had like they got the the promo like oh actually they enjoyed it for whatever reason and then actually bought it I guess I guess yeah yeah so it's just it's it's just interesting like what they're doing with this series and like how it started out as a hit almost on par with a Halloween a Texas Chainsaw Friday the Thirteenth and this is where it's been kind of relegated to by the late 90s. And we, we'll talk more about that, but I think want to dive into the movie now. All of that was like a little bit of a history lesson. And oh my God, we're 52 minutes yep. in. So I apologize because that was a lot of me right there. Um, no, no. So I guess, you know, I'll start with, and I'll ask you both, like we talked a little bit about Coscarelli incorporating those outtakes from the original uh, into Oblivion. How do you both feel about how those were used? And did they serve the picture? Was it a smart choice? Like, what do you both think? I mean, 
I will take an outtake over like a flashback or a callback mm-hmm. any day. Like I thought these, I think it was smart, like we were discussing earlier, but also like the scenes that were used, there was some really sweet moments that I think actually did benefit the story. It wasn't just kind of like deleted throwaway garbage that they were like force fitting in there. Like there was some actually some really great scenes Mm -hmm. and you know, as somebody who's invested some time watching this franchise, it's nice to see these moments of young Mike and Reggie and even Jody. And so I actually really appreciated those in here. I didn't mind them at all. Yeah, it, it is my favorite part of this of this film. And how lucky were they that they got that shot of, you know, Reggie picking up Mike as just sort of a thing mm-hmm. to do. Because it actually makes for a really good ending. Considering it's like very much ending on like a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. and it kind of gives and and I when I saw this I was like, well, I'm not gonna get the rest of this. <laughs> so like I never thought we'd get a fifth movie, mm-hmm. and so I I was kind of that made me be okay with it more. You know, I was like, oh, but we had this like weirdly you know filmed long yeah. time ago tender moment between the two of them as they go off into the sunset, quote unquote. Yeah, I I. I thought like some of the moments like you just mentioned Rachel like there are some sweet moments in there like when it's just like a random summer afternoon and Reggie is uh, sorry Mike is running after Reggie's yeah. ice cream truck mm-hmm. like hopping on and helping himself to like a snack from the back of it and it I think it does like a really nice job of like driving home the point of like how long their friendship goes back Um, and how, you know, to an extent, like, Reggie has always been looking out for his best friend's little brother in some way, shape, or form. Um, And you even get, like, a way to, with, like, the hanging scene, which I thought was, like, a really good sequence, um, a way to see just how insidious the tall man can be and how he can be, like, super manipulative. Yeah. And it's also kind of sad, like, seeing those scenes with Mike, just because you literally get, like, the older Mike, and then you see these scenes of this younger Mike. But even then, in that first film, like, you know, Mike is processing a lot. You know, he's lost his parents, and and we see him lose Jody, and then, like, this is how he ends up. So there's something about being confronted with those images of him as his younger self pre-tall man and during that you know that initial encounter with him that is really kind of like i don't know there's like a tragedy there because you see him it's just like this whole guy's life has just been like devastated and sad and struggle and like i don't know it's just kind of mike's story is kind of sad mike's story is very sad and the sad thing is is like as you know the, the day job that both this mike and and i have would be like would we even be able to reach mm-hmm. Mike? Um, would he even like, like, be like wanting to talk to anybody other than Reggie yeah. about stuff? Like, that's that's the thing. Yeah. And I, yeah, you said we see this every day in our jobs. We see like kids that are Mike's age that something happens to them where you're like, this person doesn't have a chance. Like, mm-hmm. this person needs a lot more than just good old fashioned like everyday therapy to get them through yep. um they need, they need a lot to go more on a, help they need to go on a fantastical ride through the <laughs> desert in yeah. a hearse yes um 
Yes. With minions and with with minions, yes. A coffin. Um, a, yeah. <laughs> which disappears. That like that's, true. that's it just leave. I mean like it they seem to be parts in the in the coffins there, and then we have exteriors and the coffin mm-hmm. is nowhere to be found. Yeah. Now I'm willing to believe it's just magic and just disappears, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I will say that one thing that the flashbacks do is they do a good job of tying this movie closely with the first movie. Uh-huh. And this is the first, like Phantasm Oblivion is the closest thing in terms of like the tone of Phantasm, yep. that surreal dreamy feel where almost anything can happen and you're not sure what's real and what's not, you know, part two is more of like an action horror movie like there was the edict from universal was like no nightmares whatsoever mm. has to be very straightforward um part three kind of continues that trend with like tim and rocky it feels like a almost like a road trip like buddy movie like mm. let's get a team together um this kind of goes back to like let's just focus on the core characters and it has that very lethargic is the wrong word but like i i would use meditative <laughs> yes that's a much better word <laughs> which meditative. is which is prop which might be generous but that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how i float this time around like yeah. i wouldn't have called it meditative when i saw it 20 years ago but this time around that was a word that kept mm-hmm. kind of popping in my head yeah. it's like this is a very meditative way of telling this story which is jarring from two action yeah. movies um yeah do you feel like with part two and three I didn't necessarily get the idea like, oh, this is like a very low budget movie. Mm-hmm. Watching this one, it did yeah, feel yeah. like for the first time, I'm like, this one really feels like there's no money there to make this movie. Agree. Mm-hmm. And and the outtakes kind of add to that. Like, there you can see everywhere where they saved money, and like, there's there's like five people in this movie, so that's one thing. They're yeah. filming outside all the time. They're like they're the interior shots are like really close and like it's yeah it's you can see it everywhere but some part of me like just enjoys that that best of a bad situation kind of thing mm-hmm. like that's it's a it's um it's like like I can kind of like imagine what it was like on the set to try to make this happen and that kind of that earnestness still kind of like bleeds into the movie and still gets to me and maybe it doesn't with everybody but that's kind of why I think I like this one so much is that I'm seeing people want to make another movie of something that they love and they're making the best out of what they have. And I feel like they do a pretty good job and they create something very different compared to the other ones. And that could be a problem for some, but maybe at this point I was just like, you know, we could try something different. And I don't know. I also, like I said, was driving a hearse at the time and it's got some pretty good hearse exploitation. Um, and so that may have added to it. Um, but and for the record, okay, so on the third one, <laughs> y- y'all brought up about, like, hearse is not going that fast, and they, they don't. But I did realize I did get my hearse to go 90 one time, but I had a very large hill. <laughs> going downhill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going downhill, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it did happen. Um, but, yeah, same era of hearse, too. So, so I, like, cool. I, yeah. Three tons, those So that hearse had a Hemi, is what you're saying. <laughs> for sure, for sure. It's, it's yeah. like, I didn't mind the, the, the low budgetness of it. Like, I didn't have any issue with how this looked. Like, yeah, it can, you know, yeah, it looks cheap. 
It's fine. I've seen a lot of terrible movies that look cheap. You know, it's I'm I'm not against that. Yeah, does it look? Um, I think for me, just like I I get the meditative, I get the surreal thing, and I get that they're you know obviously that draws comparisons to the first one. But where I think that it stumbles for me is while the first one feels like Coscarelli knows what the story is, you know, and like. Yes, it's weird and it's kind of the pacing is a little slower and it's kind of out there, but they know what's happening here. It almost feels like they don't even know what's happening, like what the story is. So like there's these, you know, I love the landscape shots and I love the using the outdoors in that way. I really I thought that there were some beautiful moments there, but it almost feels like they're just filling time and not exactly sure what the purpose is. And it just feels a little muddy and like as far as what the story is compared to the first one where it's like yeah it's out there and weird but there was some intent with that one where this one feels i'm I'm not convinced let's just say that and so i think that's where the disconnect lies for me that makes sense i i i I see where you're coming from there yeah so like even with the added footage put in it still feels padded they like the new content feels a bit padded at times like I would agree. Like the demon cop yeah. scene, like yeah. I don't know why that is in the movie. Like because the, you know, I guess it, it doesn't look good. Like when you see that cop, you're like, this looks like a really cheap monster mask. And even like when it's introduced, it just makes like He's an like, er noise. You're like, oh, oh my. <laughs> Like, what are we doing? What if here? he rolled down the window um, and he like held a sign up and he was like, "Have you seen this boy?" And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> <would it be laughs> great. I was like, "Wait, is this supposed be to be like a Terminator Two thing? Like, is that what this is?" I don't know. You you can see like some of the set pieces where they really want it to have like they really wanted to have a big epic feel like that Civil War <laughs> flashback. Mm-hmm. You can tell <laughs> yeah. that they want it to be huge. And I guess the way they got, like, that was an actual, like, Civil War reenactment troop. Although I think Roger Avery is one of the soldiers in the casket. Um, He's like, that's his little cameo. Um, So, you know, good acting job as a soldier in a (laughs) casket. Like, you know, I I was convinced. Um, They... I believed him. I believed it in that moment. But I believe like Coscarelli like secured the services of the troop by basically like throwing them a couple hundred bucks to their like donation box. Like something that probably would have should have cost mm-hmm. a few thousand. He's like, eh, here's a couple. We'll slip you a couple twenties. And they're like, we'll yeah. do this. Um, See, mm-hmm. that's resourceful. Yeah. That's what that is. But it just feels like really small. It just it mm-hmm. doesn't. You get, and again, like you get that feeling like it's not a huge film crew. It is a few people, It's you know, like a found footage movie. It's a couple people with a camera running around and like making a very low budget movie. Except in this case, you're not doing it found footage. And you do have someone in Coscarelli's case who can shoot a very good looking movie, at least, even though it's mm-hmm. cheap. Um, yeah. And it wouldn't be a Coscarelli movie or a phantasm movie without at least one exploding car and you get three exploding cars like he's like you know, found a few more dollars in the couch cushion 
And he's like, all right, we're going to blow some shit up. Three exploding cars in this movie. It's an interesting which... choice. Well, like, you know, you're looking mm-hmm, at yeah. your your finances and you're like, yep, got to got to blow this uh this cop car up. Yep. No way around it. You know, very important to the story. Can't can't cut that. <laughs> Do you think he yells a cab when they blow up a cop, cop car? I mean, like that's some why cops they have are... to. I wrote that down assholes. in my notes. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah, so it's like this is this is also, Coscarelli's uh, the, like, moment. Yep. Wait, is the guy in the trunk? Was that the actual cop? And then is yes. that okay? Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's kind of zombified when they oh, and that would could have been like an interesting idea, and maybe that is like a remnant of like avery's idea mm-hmm. where this person is infected because he's gone from looking very normal to like very quickly like his skin is kind of sloughed and he's all pockmarked um that was like an interesting idea but again it doesn't really go anywhere there's nothing i i thought he maybe wait might be in the process of becoming the not jawa mm. or something mm-hmm. mm. like that could have been that i mean like he's i don't know maybe i just thought that because he's all weird contorted in the the trunk but yeah possibly um i do think that the smaller effects look good i do think like the sphere in the head looks very good i thought the you know and i thought the scene in the hotel where they kind of like cover like jennifer's breasts up like a way she's kind of posing so you think she's doing it just to kind of be coy or you know she just wants to cover herself because really who wants reggie bannister kind of ogling them like that um and then you the spheres it's a pretty grotesque little effect with the spheres coming out of the breast and then later on with mike like that is a gross really good the head one made me cringe like i was like oh no no, i don't like it (laughs) yeah yeah and for listeners right now like i just had a massive lump taken out of my head um so like as i'm talking about this i can hear feel it's actually to be quite honest like it's swollen up still after the surgery so feels about the same oh size so <laughs> i'm like yeah i'm all about those head lumps right now like i'm you haven't, you know, all for it you haven't like gone to a funeral <laughs> yeah. recently and met a really tall undertaker <laughs> or like a... no one recently has died so we're in good okay. um what happens to Tim? I don't know. Oh, he died. He got God and he died. Okay. Okay. Like he gets he because he gets the he gets the the he gets the phantasm end mm-hmm. where he gets taken through broken glass and he died. That's my guess. Yeah, but um, I mean, Mike got taken through broken glass and he lived. Yeah, but the the girl didn't in the second. That's one. true. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's a yeah. There's it is weird. There's no mention of him like. You know, Reggie is chased mm-hmm. after or... his best friend's little brother, but he kind of adopts him in Phantasm 3. And there's like never even, and it's not like Tim is like a cousin Oliver or a Scrappy Doo <laughs> character. Like he's pretty cool. Like he's a pretty likable yeah. character. It's not like, oh, he'll never be named, should never be named again. Just gone. He forever. also is like pretty resourceful mm-hmm. and capable. So, like, he could really come in and be like, you know, have mm-hmm. aged up a little bit and like just yeah. kind of come in and been all like, all right, let's do this. Like I'm out to get this. Yeah. If there was a legacy 
Phantasm sequel, that would have been like a total thing to do. He just shows up, saves the day once. That's not happening in five. Okay, I, can I was tell you like, right now. but you know, I, um, <laughs> from what I understand, he's never mentioned again after part three. He doesn't even get the milk carton. Have you seen this boy? Missed opportunity. You know, missed opportunity because he, like you, we talked about in part three, he's like if Kevin McAllister actually murdered. The wet bandits, because he is all about like I will stink, I will like you know shock a ninja star right into your fucking head, you know. Mm-hmm. And he murders a dude with a gun in cold blood, like basically just throws three bullets at him with like an assassin's glare. So I don't know. I guess there is a earlier draft of the script where you show the minions like feasting on Tim's corpse. No. Yeah. Much like they do with uh, the girl from part two. Um, so they're like literally eating this child and Reggie <laughs> sees it and is like, should I shoot the minions? No, I can't. It'll alert the tall man and then does it anyway. And then it like smashes to credits. Phantasm for. So the thing you see like right before, you know, smash the credits is like, this 11 year old boy being basically eaten by Jawas, which that would have been that have gone hard. Really would have been. That would have really gone hard. Kind of <laughs> wish they did it. I mean, that was definitely <laughs> yeah. a choice. Um, the notes I have here, the relationship between Mike and Jody and Mike and Regis, Reggie, that it's been a through line through all of these movies, but it does feel like for oblivion, it really focuses on the interpersonal relationships, especially Mike and Jody in this one. And I kind of have my own thoughts on it, but what do you feel is kind of going down with like how Mike is viewing his brother or not brother in this movie? I think he's like, I think he's so basically through all these movies, we're dealing with Mike kind of, dealing with the guilt grief of his dead brother. Um, like having that, you know, sad that his brother died, but also feeling this guilt about it at the same time, which may or may not be his fault. And it's not his fault. But, and I think in this one, this is him kind of reckoning with that the best way, because I because th- he figures out that this isn't really Jody pretty early on. And then because of that, I think he's actually like, able to get past this to a certain extent for once and like he's got other things going on too i mean like he's got he's got an orb in his head <laughs> so i mean like i think that for this one this is the the ending of that grief well guilt grief kind of part of mike and and i honestly don't remember enough from ravager to you know, how it goes but i mean jody's in that one too mm-hmm. but it's yeah, so that's that's kind of how I see this. This is him finally reckoning it with himself through a doppelganger in a weird way. Yeah, I think the reckoning with himself is a key thing here. I think for the it's the first movie where he feels like he's kind of in charge of his own mm-hmm. actions or yeah. making decisions for himself. What do you I, think, totally. Rachel? It feels like this is his moment to be like, all right, I... I can't necessarily guarantee that Reggie's coming. You know, I can't, I don't need to and shouldn't be depending on Jody. Like, 
I can't, like, what am I going to do? If am I going to just resign myself to being, you know, an agent of the tall man? Or am I going to try to get out of this in some way? And, you know, we see him, you know, try to hang himself, which is, you know, not an option, you know, necessarily I would encourage him, him to do. But that's in, in I, I feel like that's almost in his way, like, trying to just take agency, like, to do something to get out of this. And, like, that's, you know, he attempts to, but tall man apparently owns him and won't let him do that. And see, I don't, I don't take that as like actually like a, a serious attempt. Actually. I think of that as him literally doing that to get the tall man. Okay. Out. I, hmm. I did not like, take I, it that oh, way, but I didn't yeah. see it that way. Yeah. Cause I like, I mean, yeah, he's depressed. Like, I mean, like I'm not going to like sugarcoat that, but something about the way he's thinking about stuff, the way he's being kind of like, having a lot of agency about it it's like i don't think he wants to die there i think he's trying to see if that's how he's going to be able to summon him on his like because when they're having that like the scene in the where the tall man's in the back of the hearse and there's like the pulp fiction yeah casket scene like that's kind of like where he says no i'm in control yeah. now you know that's that's his moment and i think that's mike's way of being like seeing if that is a way how he can like if he's near death and can't be controlled by him that's probably going to have him come intervene well, I so like i don't that. necessarily like, I like think, that read like better. i don't necessarily think yeah yeah i'd like, th- like that's kind of how to manipulate I read him back in a way see yeah. i appreciate that but I, still either way you look at it i think that the the point is, is it's him trying to take control of the situation for himself rather yeah. than depending on these people that have always been there for him in a role where they are in, you know, they're older and they've sort of been those protective figures in his life and he can't, I mean, that's tough when you have those people and then they're not there and you just have to, you know, buck up and do something about it yourself. Um, I will say, I just also, I appreciate how there's these three, uh, these three now grown men refuse to let their style evolve in any way, shape or form. Um, they're all wearing the exact same things all the time as the years go by. Uh, although, you know, on Reggie now it's starting like, oh, it looks like my dad. He's got like, like the saggy mm-hmm. butt jeans and like the flannel. <laughs> like... <laughs> they, they should have remade Phantasm, but with the same characters playing their age in Phantasm, but at the age they're at yeah. now, like <laughs> That would have been amazing. Also, that, like, dream mm-hmm. sequence or whatever when they're, like, at the beach. Like, <laughs> Reggie's got, oh, like, yeah. his hair down. We see Reggie's hair down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he's, like, and Jody's got the hat on backwards, playing guitar. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Just amazing. <laughs> it It's it's interesting. Cause like you said, both of you have said, like, it's jo- it's Michael without his brother and without Reggie to kind of watch his back and having to make decisions on his own. And to me, like a lot of this movie is about Mike processing what's happened to mm-hmm. him and like all the dimension jumping and time hopping. It's like, is there any way like we, you know, we say this phrase a lot. Like if I know, if I knew then what I knew now, Oh, how mm-hmm. things would be different, you know? Mm-hmm. And if, what if like Mike could go back and, fix all of these things that have gone wrong like how would things turn out differently for him um and what's interesting is you know mike again obviously doesn't trust jody in this because it's not really jody and i think about like the first phantasm movie and 
you know, Jody is ready to leave Mike with his aunt. Like Jody is pretty much ready to pack a bag and leave town. He's like stuck around for two years after his parents have died. But now he's like, all right, I've got my own life to live. And, um, you know, I love my brother, but I, I'm not, I'm his brother, not his father. I need to go do my own thing. Um, and Jody hasn't been there for Mike on Mike's journey post phantasm. He's had to like figure whether it's like staying in an institution for a decade or being a pawn of the tall man or trying to figure out how do I break this grass from him? He's kind of had to do it on his own. Um, so I see oblivion like, Jody, for the first time, he's not being seen by Mike as this like larger than life person. You know, Mike is no longer idolizing him because you think about that first movie and Mike is looking up to his big brother. It's like this dude who like can play guitar and he can score with all Mm -hmm. the hot ladies and he drives like a badass muscle car that he even lets me drive and fix. Like I didn't have an older brother, but like there were people like in my neighborhood, like older boys in my neighborhood that I looked up to, they would like do things just like that. You're like, Oh, they're super cool. And I want to be like them one day. And then you get older and you realize like, no, I'm just my own person. Like you're seeing Jody as a person. Um, And it's kind of like sad the way Jody is written and that he's this pawn you know, he's like actively trying to hurt Mike. And I think that's why like his last line, like after he's kind of freed in death by he's freed in his death from being a pawn of the tall man. When he actually looks at Mike and says like, I died in that car crash. Like it's him admitting like this hasn't been me all along. Like I really died years ago, like kind of a pretty powerful moment in like this direct video little film here. Mm-hmm. This this is why I like this one so yeah. much is there's all this other emotional mm-hmm. stuff going on that I mean like I'm not gonna say there's not emotional stuff going on in the other two but they they come to the forefront in in this one because of that like you know meditative way of doing yeah. the film in comparison no it's strong yeah. emotionally I just wish it was stronger with the lore and the mythology and like that kind yeah. of stuff because I do feel like the other three have been you know, building that piece by piece where mm-hmm. it's, you know, mm-hmm. going. I have no fucking idea. But, like, they have been adding kind of interesting elements. And then this one, I just feel like that kind of gets, I don't I don't know, very confusing and <laughs> lost. Mm-hmm. Let's talk <laughs> about that. Because the first few movies established that, like, the tall man is from this alien dimension and he's using all of these corpses basically as slaves that he is importing back to his home dimension. And his goal is to create as much death as possible everywhere he goes in order to create more slaves. Pretty simple backstory. And even though we don't know what these minions are doing per se, we get in We know why he needs them. Even if we don't know like what exactly they're doing. What do you think of the backstory that he's given here in that he starts out as this kind of like kindly old doctor and then becomes the tall man and we're not quite sure why that is. Like, I can tell Rachel from what you've said, like, not a huge fan of that. Well, okay, let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly, Andrew, as the as the resident expert here tonight. Um, so we've got this Morningside guy, Mr. Morningside, and he's doing some experiments 
and some weird mad scientist stuff. And he crosses over into this other dimension. Now, I read it as mm-hmm. he's gone. And then the tall man taking the shape of this guy, a completely different entity comes back. Am I reading that I right? Well. Or, yeah. okay, okay. Because I wasn't sure. It's like, yeah. wait, did something yeah. happen to him? And it's the same guy coming back, but like something has changed him. But I read it as like a completely different entity, which still kind of plays into mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Everything else that one through three has established. I just don't know if like some of that other stuff, I guess, is necessary. Like the doctor thing, the civil, <laughs> I guess. Just... I think it's misdirection. Okay. Like I, I don't. I'm not saying this is like a conscious effort of being like super smart yeah. or anything. But if you're thinking of like it's the fourth movie, we got to give them some information that you know we got to give them some backstory now, which you, you don't have to. But you know, they people think you do. But the thing is, we don't actually really get information yeah, about exactly. the tall man. We just get in, we just get information about what yeah. he looks like. And and when he says you know you have to go back to the beginning or whatever he says, um, like he's he's ta- he's he goes back to the he's not we're not going back to the origin of Jeb uh, of Morningside we're going back to the origin of the Tall Man and the origin of the Tall Man is when he steps out yeah, of that thing. So- mm-hmm. He just happens to include that. And by the way, I picked this guy to look like. You so don't there's learn like anything. there's somewhere like out- you, you oh like no, we okay, don't learn you anything. walked through but like yeah. you don't it doesn't actually expand the mythos in any real way like those you know the civil war thing doesn't really add any value it just shows like oh he's been around a long time all right cool i think we already kind Mm -hmm. of knew that in some capacity and like Mm -hmm. also wait so you're trying to tell me that he's just been hanging around morningside for the last you know however many (laughs) hundreds of years like (laughs) so it's the thing I've often wondered about, and when, you know, in the 18-something years that I had to think about what would a potential Phantasm Five look like, the one of the things I thought about was uh, Morningside in the other dimension. And, does like, he meets whatever the tall man yeah. originally looked like. They have some kind of conference. This is the stupid headcanon story I made. This is not real in any way. Um, like... They have some kind of confrontation. He, the maybe Morningside wanted to get to Earth to do his thing a lot earlier. Finally, he finds a conduit to do it. He assumes that because he knows that's what humans look mm-hmm. like on, on Earth. So that's what he decided to go with. And so, like, that's when he began. And maybe it takes a while for him to get his stuff going on. Or he's been doing this for over 100 years. And it's just Jody and, well, not uh, Mike and Jody are the first ones yeah. to really figure it out. And... I'm not saying that's satisfying, but the thing I like about it is that it's sort of like, hey, here's the origin of this. It's not really the origin yeah. of this. And a part of me really likes <sighs> that for some reason, is that the, the tall man is yeah. still mysterious. And it does make sense what you're saying, that why show us all this if it doesn't mean like, anything? I, get, I, I think it's <laughs> cheeky, where I, and like I appreciate yeah. the humor to that, <laughs> to be like, oh, you wanted origins? Yeah. And I don't even yeah. know if that's well, on that's purpose. that's the thing. It's like, I'm not yeah. convinced it is. Yeah. Like I, I, yeah, and I'm not convinced either. But it would be something the tall man would do to mess with you, is to be. Like, I'm going to show you this one thing that is totally not as like that is totally not really the answer you want. Yeah, like that's like I kind of I kind that makes sense. But I don't know as much as I love Don. I don't know if he had the forethought <laughs> to right. go that far because so. he's not. These aren't movies that are planned out ahead like okay here is yeah. my roadmap of where i go from 
Phantasm one to two to three to four. It they are very much like on the fly. This is what he's coming up with at this time for a movie. So it's not like mm-hmm. he has like a a there's not a phantasm Bible that says like this no. is where we're gonna go in each of these movies. So as much as we say like this is the vision mostly of one creator and how you get like a more consistent story because of that. At the same time, it's not like he knows where he's going to go with any of these movies. Mm -hmm. Like I four movies in for the life of me still struggle to understand what the connection is between Mike and the tall man. I'm not quite sure why the tall man is so fascinated Mm -hmm. with Mike and why Mike is so important. The only thing that I feel is different about oblivion is that in a lot of ways, the tall man is less of a malevolent. He's less of a malevolent. I can't say it. Malevolent. Thank you. Force. Um, There is almost a level of genuine caring or pathos for Mike from the tall man. Like he's like, it's not your time yet. Uh, He is almost guiding him along this inevitable path and it's almost a kind of this is going to be a weird analogy but like almost like caring for someone in a hospice you're trying Mm -hmm. to make him as comfortable Mm -hmm. as possible on this journey that no matter what mike tries to do it's always going to have one outcome so this outcome doesn't have to be awful yeah yeah uh I, yeah, I just, I just don't know. It's funny. It, yeah, I agree. You know. Yeah. Yeah, they're not all planned out, but what maybe they should the, be a little bit more planned out. Would you feel <laughs> yeah. different if it wasn't the Span uh, Civil War? If it was the Spanish American War? Would you feel that like, makes sense. all right? That's yeah. no. more no. acceptable. Okay, <laughs> that we can accept. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the ending of this movie because there are two things with it. I think number one the seeds are there for what could be a very epic showy big finale. But again, the money's just not there to pull it off, but what they do get by incorporating the footage is kind of beautiful, like way more touching than you would typically see Mm -hmm. at the end of a horror series. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the things that I really like. Like, like yeah. I said earlier, like it's, it's a great that they thought to shoot that back in the seventies because mm-hmm. it's it ended up being a like a, the perfect way to end this little movie. Yeah, it is. So. It's very sweet. It's very cute. It draw it. You know, they're they're pulling threads from those. You know, the first film and this one a lot. You get those those through lines that I think any fan is going to appreciate, whether or not some of them serve the story that you know is at hand arguable but this was the best case scenario and i do feel like i mean the, it's these outtakes that i think really prove oh, yeah if the outtakes weren't there it wouldn't yeah be and it, of a movie at all <laughs> like so yeah. it ends on a cliffhanger yes, it ends on a cliffhanger and it just it does show like there it saves it from being a complete dumpster fire in my opinion <laughs> and, and you know like okay. this is like these moments and this one kind of like ground it in that emotional core that helps support some of the other stuff that is a little bit weaker 
Oblivion is very much a meditation on death. It's a meditation on the in the inevitable, and specifically about our own mortality. And the theme of this movie is acceptance. It's really trying mm-hmm. to come terms with what your fate is going to be because we all face the same thing. What's really beautiful about the end of this movie with that footage, number one, it kind of shows how maybe this is a very circular story that like, okay, by Reggie and Mike being in the hearse together, we're going to shuttle all the way back to the beginning of the series and history is going to repeat itself in a loop like over and over again. But also this idea that there's acceptance there. Like when, when Reggie asked Mike, do you hear something? And it's like, Nope, it's just the wind. And in that moment, both Reggie and Mike are accepting that. Okay. Like this is maybe our stories are coming to an end here, but it doesn't have to be ugly. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be painful. It can just be, you know, our stories are going to be whispered in the wind forever. Like people will talk about what have happened to us. We aren't going to be forgotten. Um, and they're at peace with it at that moment. Um, kind of like the end of Scream 3, which, again, people who know me know I love the Scream series more than anything. The end of that trilogy has, I think, one of the most earned endings of any three movies in that Sydney sees an open door to her up her home, and after everything that she's been through, she's now at peace with what's happened, and she's able to just walk away from that open door and go sit with her friends. The end of Phantasm, after everything that Mike and Reggie and Jody have been through, after years of kind of chasing after the tall man, maybe they've realized like he's just he can't be defeated. Like he's always going to come back, no matter we've frozen him, we've shot him, we've melted him, we've blown him up, and the only thing that's going to happen is going to come through that portal. Like in another another version of that form is going to come through the portal, but we're at peace with that. Our story is over and it doesn't have to be something yeah. horrible. No, it, it is. And it's like, it's a perfect like nice, Mike. <laughs> way to close this door and start it again a little bit fresher. I have not seen the next one, but it's, yeah, it makes, it leaves the door open for what could come after it and wouldn't necessarily rely on a continuation of the story that we've seen so far as we know it anyways. It just opens up for a lot of possibilities because it does feel like it's okay. They're going to be okay and they're going to go on and maybe they come back together. Maybe they, you know, maybe it's just Reggie, maybe it's just Mike, but it would feel earned, I guess, if that were to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, now that you've been like talking about acceptance and all this stuff, I'm now seeing how like I'm seeing like the Kubler Ross stages in these four movies. I'm like, part one, <laughs> denial. Two, anger. Three, bargaining. This one is de- four, depression, acceptance. There we like, go. Excellent. See, yeah. maybe that was his plan all there along. I could be completely wrong. Don's like, I knew exactly what I was doing, you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the case, but you know what? We'll go. Um, the last thing I have here is I, Halloween and Phantasm come out mm-hmm. roughly around the same time. Halloween comes out in 1978. Phantasm is completed by 78, but it's kind of making the rounds around 79. Both are very 
successful independent horror movies both go on to spawn franchises. I mean, they're both made for about like Carpenter's Halloween and Coscarelli's Phantasm. They're both made for about $300,000. You see vastly different part paths the two movies go in when it comes to the sequels. And I was thinking about H2O and Oblivion and the paths <laughs> both took to kind of get where they were and how it's kind of like fascinating. So I just had here, by the time 1998 rolls around, Halloween's reinvented itself for the third time. They've done yeah. Season of the Witch, where they try to go the anthology route. They've come back with the Cult of Thorn trilogy. And now they've gone full circle and brought Jamie Lee Curtis back to play Laurie Strode. But they've shifted the tone so much that even with Laurie Strode back, it like H2O doesn't quite feel like Halloween. It feels like an yeah. extension of Scream or... Yeah. I know what you did last summer, which makes sense. It's a Kevin Williamson written movie. It's big. It's loud. It has pop culture references that like really like date it by the time it's come out. Like, you know, exactly when Halloween H2O takes place just based on like Josh Hartnett's hair. And, oh, oh, that's late. <laughs> oh, my God. Iconic. You know, yeah. handsome dude, but bad hair. Yeah. Iconic um, hair. Yeah. And it's rewarded. It, is, it, is. it, it does like. 55 million theaters like it's rewarded for being that phantasm it's the vision of one person Mm -hmm. it might not completely disregard like commercial metrics but it's not beholden to them at a time when like genre films are getting hot young hollywood (laughs) or tv stars to be in their show like you're getting you're getting Courtney Cox. You're getting Sarah Michelle Geller. You're getting Michelle Williams. Like really beautiful people that you recognize from your TV screens to be in these horror movies. Phantasm has like three <laughs> dudes that to call them middle age would be generous at this point. Yeah, they're not household names. Mm-hmm. They're barely even actors. They look weathered. Like they look their age. Like they look. <laughs> older than they they actually are and yep. coscarelli gives like no fucks he's like nope this is who my movies are about you know you're not replacing michael baldwin with joshua jackson um and being like phantasm Four, the hot one. Oh my god <laughs> what do we think of this and what does that mean for this this series or I mean, any thoughts, or am I just kind of like making comparisons that I don't mean, make any I think sense? It's, I think it's super interesting because it's like one of those things where you see a film and for some reason it feels like they come out at different times, and it's always you know it's always interesting when you realize like oh god these are like contemporaries that's that's odd. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. feels like Halloween was willing to, for better or worse, like you know that's subjective, but was willing to evolve and embrace the styles of the time and kind of tried to ride those trendy waves a little bit where this phantasm, it feels like it's still got the same vibe as the original one. Like it hasn't, it hasn't evolved in style. I, I would mm-hmm. say that the, the second and third one did a little bit, like they were kind of trying to tap into some of those more you know, modern trendy things that were happening in film at the time. This one feels like it was yeah. going back to the first one but in doing so feels more dated than, you know, obviously H2O, which is extremely like polar opposite, <laughs> but 
I don't know. Some people might like that. It's just, yeah, it's just a choice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it stems from the fact is that Coscarelli stuck with it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And and I think, like, if John Carpenter had stuck with, with Halloween, like, beyond where yeah. he did, like, I think we would have had something we would we would we would have had these these last three maybe a little bit earlier um and or we would have had like you know middle-aged Lori yeah. earlier on or it's something it's like studios like um, grabbing the reins and... versus like the filmmaker like holding the reins you know it's kind of like yeah. who's in control like clearly yeah. halloween like studios got in control mm-hmm. <laughs> phantasm yeah. coscarelli yeah. Mustafa control. has got that so. yeah and that's yeah. a really good point because both Coscarelli and Carpenter got kind of burned by the studio system Mm -hmm. at relatively the same point in their career, like right in the early eighties coming off of like these massive successes, like Carpenter with Halloween and then having a couple other hits right after that. And Coscarelli jumping in to do like Beastmaster and Mm -hmm. having a really miserable experience with that. And what Coscarelli took from that is like, I'm going to retain the rights to my creations and just do what I want to do. And Carpenter for better, you know, he's obviously a genius, but he's also Mm -hmm. like a gun for hire. Yep. You know I mean? He doesn't have these emotional attachments to the movies. Like he was on board to direct H2O, but he wanted like a $10 million salary, which to me would be worth every penny. Like I think, bring Carpenter in in 98 to direct a Halloween movie and you're going to get it's as good as 55 million is you're probably getting closer to like a hundred million of Carpenter's name is attached mm-hmm. but they're like no we'll give you a five he's like no nah, I'm worth 10 um, he's very much a director for hire like if you give him the money he will do your project um, yeah. he'll just do like a bang up awesome job of it but he's not necessarily attached to it where Coscarelli it feels Absolutely. a lot more personal. Mm-hmm. And I, and when I think about those, like when I think about the two of them as directors, you know, um, I think about like what their influences were. And, you know, there's a lot of Howard Hawks. They're both visionary directors, but they're visionary in different ways. So like there's that Howard Hawks, you know, influence that's on Carpenter. And I'm not exactly sure what it is on Coscarelli, but I feel like it's got to be a kind of like Fellini-esque kind of, ba- like or surrealistic kind mm-hmm. of kind of background and like and the only other closer analogous we have for that and this is still not perfect is is david lynch and like and all of his movies are really personal too and when you think about the surrealist kind of stuff all of those movies mm-hmm. are super personal to those filmmakers as well and so like that that might be the big thing is that you know with with carpenter like he'll do a great job he's got the talent but for don things have to be more personal for him to like really put himself into it maybe yeah mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yep. Oh, any final thoughts for we move um, on? I like. I just when uh, Mike is writing the will, I just thought that was really funny, and I think it's a good analogy for this film because he's like last will and testament, and then he's like, "Dear Reggie," and just like writes a diary entry. I'm like, that's not yep. a will. Like, and so that <laughs> kind of feels like this film a little bit where like you know it states like one thing (laughs) and ends up like kind of going and like doing a different thing and it's kind of like wait that doesn't really necessarily jive but that's okay but also you know i don't think we see enough like kind of desperate doom will writing and horror um 
Yeah, I think we need more of that. Not yeah, not sure what Mike would leave. Also, like, what would you be leaving behind, Mike? The Hearses, I guess. The Hearses. I don't know. Is that yours? Do you own the title? Yeah, I don't know. Which, which, for the record, he sleeps really weird in that. (laughs) Like, why would you? Why would you sleep horizontal? You would like sleep lengthwise, like a body in a hearse would be laid out. Like that's yeah. Um, like the final thoughts. Why? So, like, just having this conversation, I think I realized like a magic thing about why this one mm-hmm. spoke to me so well twenty years ago. Because like twenty years ago, like, um, mm-hmm. like my dad had died, and so I was dealing with all this background stuff. And this might have been the movie that was like working with weird emotional stuff, mm-hmm. with like guilt, grief, and stuff. And like that might have been why this I resonated with me so that. much back then. I love that. Oh. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. I mean, not that, yeah. you know, of course, not that your uh, dad passed away. But like, <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. It's fine, Rachel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah Rachel, that's dark. Like, no, I but like, but I love, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I love about, about movies, right? Because like every, you know, you can find something in yep. anything, you know, and what people like touches them in certain ways and what we're like, who, you know, who are we to say that like, no, that movie's terrible when obviously like something like can actually mean a lot and resonate with you at a really deep level. Like, that's beautiful. Yeah. And you may not even realize right, it until you know? 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Nice That's what I meant. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> moving, moving on. I'm sorry. So that is our episode on Phantasm for Oblivion. We'll be back in a week to wrap up the franchise with 2016's Phantasm Ravager. And again, I think that one's going to be very interesting you know, it's a nearly two decade long journey to make it to the screen. It's a really fascinating backstory on Phantasm Ravenger, like what it took to get that movie made. It's Angus Grimm's uh, swan song. Like he passed sadly just before uh, the movie came out. Although maybe Rachel would celebrate. Like glad he died. I, I will cut that part out. Don't put me. Not. Don't put that on me. In. um so you know sadly angus scrim passed right before um ravenger came out but before we go into the night andrew tell us a little bit about the dead letter movie podcast and what's coming up for you um so this weekend uh tim and i will be recording our sundance roundup um just talking about the movies that we saw and what, you know, what we liked, what we didn't like, what to look out for when they become available to other people. Um, and I already have a, I have a, a review up for cat person up that you can read on the site. Um, it, it made choices. Um, <laughs> in its adaptation. <laughs> we all do. Um, it, 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 it made choices that I, I understand, but also am unsure needed to happen. But eh. um, anyway, if you like the story, you're going to, you may want to not watch the last half hour. I'll just say that. Um, and um, and then uh, we have the the with the uh, with the Oscars coming up. We always do at least a couple episodes where we just talk about what's nominated for Best Picture. So that'll be coming up in February, most likely. And then and then like March, I ha- we have ideas for March, but we're gonna see what shakes out first. So yeah. Where are you on the Justice for Mia Goth not getting nominated for Pearl? Am I surprised? No, but should she have gotten it? Oh, absolutely. Um, especially because one nominee just, ha- and I haven't seen that movie, and I'm sure she's good in it. Um, one nominee just like really campaigned for her to be up for best actress in the last minute. Mm-hmm. And so like, and I was like, but oh, she, that could Andrew, have been she's amazing. Spot. I am um, not mad that she gets it. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
See? Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I haven't seen that movie, and so like I'm she's sure great she's great in everything. In it. Like, I mean, though. Like, okay, sorry. Yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I believe you. No, I totally believe you. It's like I'm not faulting her really. Um, it's it's you know it's just the system, but yeah. I'm more upset that Rebecca Hall didn't get nominated for Resurrection because what mm-hmm. she does in that movie is amazing, and I also refuse to believe that is Mia Goth's real voice. After hearing her <laughs> yeah. speak, I'm like, no, you're not a, I think someone described her as a Victorian ghost. And I'm like, this can't be real. Okay. So we'll look forward to those episodes and mm-hmm. where can listeners find you on the socials? On the socials, it's uh deadliner movies on Instagram. We, we exist on Twitter in a, in a, with a similar name, but we haven't really been using it because we're waiting to see what wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you know, Twitter's a dumpster fire. It's always been a dumpster fire, but we we don't want to add to the fire. I don't judge anyone who still is, but yeah. It's sad that it's like the platform for promoting work. Yeah. Because yeah. there just needs to be some better things out there so we can all get off of it at this point. Yeah. So, Rachel, how about yourself? What pieces are you working on and where else can our listeners yeah, hear you Yeah, I've got some right cool interviews that should be coming out, you know, pretty soon whenever I get them all wrapped up. Uh, but I have got Trevor Gurekis, who just scored the remake for Dead Space, um, the video game. And he also oh. is the works with M. Night Shyamalan a lot. He's did all the music for Servant. Uh, that'll be on Valingo. And then for Dread Central, I spoke with Anthony Willis, who scored Megan. And that was a lot of fun. And then Julian Sherl, who scored um, Missing, which is a pseudo sequel to Searching and is actually pretty, pretty good. And the mm. music is pretty amazing. So, um, yes. So I've got those coming out in the next few weeks. Rachel, where can we find you on the social? You can socials? find me on Twitter at Vinyl Girl, G-R-R-R-L, and on Instagram at The Vinyl Girl. Because someone took that I know, tag so frustrating. Before you can get it. And they never use yeah, it, right? No, they it's never like, use yeah. it. Don't deserve it. Just give it to me. <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening, <laughs> give it to Rachel, please. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of that Bobby Hurley... Saturday Night Live commercial with Adam Sandler and Chris Farley, where you could be Adam Sandler. You'd be like, just give me the tag. Just, yeah, I'll, just I'll be just good with it. Me, I'll right? be all right. And I can yell like Chris Farley, just give her the damn <laughs> Instagram tag. So I, the other night, I try to describe what our old cat who's going senile, who he reminds me of. And I showed my wife and my daughter, like the Will Ferrell is Harry Carey on SNL. I'm like, when I hear our cat, Sam, like this is what I hear in my head at this point all the time. And it yeah, whenever I meet of... someone named Colin, I always say it like I eventually called him Col- <laughs> Colin. Like, it, it's, I just can't not do it. Yeah. <laughs> if you were made of ribs, would you eat yourself? Uh, anyway, as far as I go. You can check out my other show, Space, the fu- no, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, everywhere you can download shows where we explore the connections between the horror genre and mental health and wellness. So in January, we looked at the effects of COVID on our collective mental state with movies like Host and The Harbinger. Uh, February brings a new topic, and we're going to explore relationship issues with movies like Possession X and my all-time favorite movie in American World in London with one more title to be determined. 
Uh, you can follow me over at Twitter and Instagram at Mike underscore Snoonian and Letterbox and Hive at Mike Chump Change. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back in a week to wrap up Phantasm. It's one more lap in the ice cream truck when we talk about Ravenger. Uh, after that, we're moving on to our next franchise, and it's going to be a fun one. We're making some homemade shivs, <laughs> we're doing some crime, and we're talking about all the movies in the Purge series. So if you want an easy way to support our show, take a moment, visit our page on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a few kind words about why you're enjoying us. It takes less than a minute, goes a super long way to helping us move up the rankings, puts us higher up in the searches and uh, it does help new listeners all of which helps new listeners find us so thanks again everyone and we'll be back really soon bye